good morning to you and happy Easter. Yeah, that's right. I'm Dan Seitz, senior pastor here at the church. And I just want to tell you, like other people have said already, how fantastic it is to have you here in the room today. You know, maybe uh, two weeks ago, the thought of being in church on Easter was the farthest thing from your mind. And yet somebody from Hillside invited you and you're here today. We want to say, uh, and I'll say this on behalf of all the Hillside regulars, how delighted we are to have you in the room and in this church. And we welcome you. That's right. You know, for Christians, there is no day like Easter. Nothing compares. There is no day that means more, that swells with more joy than this day, today, Easter. And for us, no seawall of sadness or disappointment or heartache can withstand the tidal wave of joy that is Easter Sunday. And that's not because we have a special love of hollow plastic eggs or yellow marshmallow peeps at all. And speaking of marshmallow peeps, I learned this week that this candy up here is not just a seasonal delicacy. Rather, in the non-Easter months, the company, get this, that manufactures marshmallow peeps produces 5.5 million peeps every day in various shapes and sizes. That's true. And if you ever find yourself in Oxon Hill, Maryland, Bloomington, Minnesota, or Bethlehem, PA, you can visit a real brick-and-mortar marshmallow peep store. Did you know that? But if you do... I want to give you some advice. Be very careful about posting on Facebook because one of your friends might be a member of one of the many I Hate Marshmallow Peeps Facebook groups. So be very, very, very careful. <laughs> but the truth is, you know, none of those silly traditions is the reason that Easter is such a source of extraordinary joy uh, for us Christians. Rather, it's because this day is a celebration of something true and something Tremendous, something that is literally world changing, something that God really did, the benefits of which really are the fulfillment of humanity's deepest desires. And, and think with me for a moment about what it is that you desire the most. Think about it. Here's the truth. The benefits of Easter, the riches of Easter that flow to you if you claim them, are the fulfillment of that greatest longing. Easter is the dream that we all have that actually comes true. And in the next 18 minutes or so, I, I want to answer three questions. The first one is this, what happened at Easter Second, what is its significance for us? And third, how can we know that it actually happened? First, what happened at the first Easter? What's the real event buried beneath the bunny and the blue plastic grass? Here's what, about 30 AD. On the third day after he was executed by Roman soldiers, Jesus of Nazareth, 
who was a Jewish prophet and a teacher and a healer who proclaimed that at long last God was coming back to his people. That man rose from the dead. In other words, after being beaten and whipped and then nailed to a wooden cross by professional executioners, Jesus' physical body came back to life. Not bruised or bloodied, but renewed and restored. And just so we're clear, this is really important. It was a physical body that Jesus rose in. A body made of matter. Nevertheless, it was one that had what we might call superhero properties. For instance, after his resurrection, Jesus could pass through walls and his disciples bore witness that he did that. Matthew, one of four biblical writers who describes the resurrection, tells the story this way. He says that early on that Sunday morning, uh, immediately after the Friday of Jesus's crucifixion, uh, Mary Magdalene and another Mary, two of Jesus's closest friends and followers, they go to the tomb to visit it. And Matthew actually doesn't tell us much about their state of mind, but we can imagine what it, it would have been. These two women are absolutely devastated. They are crushed. And they're utterly horrified and heartsick by what happened to Jesus just three, de- three days before. And you could put it this way. Their dreams are totally dashed. The dreams they had, the hopes they had that the creator God in and through this spectacular person was finally defeating evil and ushering in a brand new age in which everyone from every nation on earth, every skin color could finally enjoy God's uh, forgiveness and friendship and abundance. And of course, there had been uh, other would-be messiahs who had come on the scene. Uh, They had claimed to be God's anointed, but every single one of them had flamed out. But, But this Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, was totally different. Everything about him was different. The, the gentleness with which he, he cared and interacted with children. The honor with which he treated women. Uh, the fierceness and uncompromisingness in the way he spoke the truth. He lived in reality and he spoke that truth to powerful people. And in a a Palm Sunday that I heard once, uh, the pastor, happened to be my own twin brother, Darren, pointed out that even in the way Jesus availed himself of the donkey that he used to ride into Jerusalem on the very first Palm Sunday, even the way he, he, he grabbed that donkey was totally different. You see, in the Roman world, powerful officials had the legal right just to uh, take an animal for their own purposes. And you can imagine this would have been an infuriating experience for the owner of the animal because the powerful person who borrowed the animal often forgot to return it. Uh, But what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do with the animal that he borrows for his royal ride into Jerusalem? Mark tells us that Jesus takes pains to have one of his associates promise the owner that after they use this donkey, they will send it back and they will do so immediately. And we can be sure that he did. 
And this is the thing that was most distinctive about Jesus. The thing that shocks me over and over again as I read his stories, which I do over and over again. Despite his prestige as the son of God, despite a person of incredible and recognized power, he could do miracles and healings. He never abused that power. He never used it for his own purposes or his own self-aggrandizement. Well, it's because Jesus was so spectacular. I mean, totally spectacular, so unimaginably good, so unimaginably kind, so unimaginably wise, brave, welcoming, spectacular. These two women, along with hundreds, maybe thousands of other Jewish people who knew of his ministry and who maybe had been healed by him, were absolutely convinced he's the one. He's God's long-awaited king. And that's what made the crucifixion so heartbreaking, so excruciating. It meant that as extraordinary as Jesus was, ultimately, he was nothing but an extraordinary pretender. Because in the mind of a Jewish person in the first century, a a crucified Messiah, a Messiah who was killed could only mean one thing. It was a failed Messiah, and there was no way around it. So they're crushed. Well, Matthew tells us that these two women arrive at the tomb. Again, they're crushed. And the most unexpected, unlikely, unimaginable thing happens. The ground shakes and an angel appears telling them that if they want to find Jesus of Nazareth, they're going to have to find him somewhere besides the tomb because he's not there anymore. He's risen, he tells them. And then the angels invite these two thunderstruck women to see the empty tomb for themselves. He said, come, see it for yourselves. And after that, he's all business. The angel tells them, uh, go to the disciples, tell them this incredible news, and then get going to Galilee, but he's going to meet you there. And Matthew tells us that at this point, the two Marys, they, they, they run off full of fear, full of joy to share the news with the eleven. But then, before it seems they can even get 20 steps down the path to Galilee, big surprise number two of the morning happens. They run smack into Jesus himself. And they take hold of his feet. And they worship him. And Jesus receives their worship. And then much like the angel who they just encountered, gives them a job. Matthew 28, 10, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. And they do. That's the story of Easter. That's the historic event. That's the reason for our joy. That brings us to question number two. What's the significance for us? What does it mean for us today? So many things. First, the resurrection of Jesus means the forgiveness of sins. Jesus understood himself as the one whose job it was to pay the penalty for the world's sins. John the Baptist had called him the Lamb of God, the sacrificial lamb, and and Jesus did not dispute the title. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus said that the purpose of his life was to trade his life for the lives of sinners. And the fact 
that after his death on the cross, God the Father brought Jesus back to bodily life means that God accepted Jesus's sacrifice. And what that means for us today is that forgiveness is available. The resurrection means that we can be let off the hook for all the lies we've told and all of the commitments we've broken, all the hurt that we've caused, all the ways that we personally have added to the disorder of the world. Because of Jesus' reaction, uh, because of Jesus' resurrection, we can be sure that the record of all of our wrongs has been canceled, which means the possibility of a free and easy conscience. You know, a few years ago, I read about a 98-year-old man named Kanabi Harada, who uh, during his young adult years was a pilot for the Japanese Air Force. He was a fighter pilot. And during World War II, this guy shot down 19 Allied aircraft from the cockpit of his Zero. Get this. Almost every night since the end of the war, he has been plagued by nightmares of the men that he killed. And he told a reporter who interviewed him that burned into his memory are the terrified faces of the pilots that he downed moments before they plunged into the sea. What's the point? You know, a lot of people in the world feel like Kanabi Harada. A lot of people in the world can still see the faces of the people they shot down in one way or another. Here's the good news. Because of Easter, because Jesus, the sinless son of God, bore our sins, complete forgiveness is available for anybody who wants it. Second, the resurrection means friendship with God. I mean, with sins wiped away, with the debt cleared, there is no hindrance. Nothing hinder, hinders us from enjoying the closest possible relationship with God. Because of the resurrection, we get to know him. We get to love him. We get to have contact with him. We get to be loved by him. We get to be guided by him through every decision. We get to be consoled by him when our hearts are breaking. We get to be commissioned by him as his agents in the world of love and mercy and creative service and truth. And ultimately, when we die, we get to be received by him. The resurrection of Jesus means that we can have as our best and our closest friend, somebody closer to us than our own hearts, the one who created the entire world from the minutest grain of sand to whatever it is that lies outside the heliosphere. He can be our friend, our closest friend. Third, the resurrection of Jesus means freedom from every single fear. I want to ask you something. What is it that you fear the most? I mean, really. What is it that you fear the most? Most, what is it that drives you to middle of the night cereal <laughs> and mindless web surfing? Because you can't sleep. Like 12 year old Siggy Marvin, remember him? What about Bob? Is it death? 
Is that what you fear? The resurrection of Jesus means that death has been defeated. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, the dark power of death, that dark shroud that hangs over all of us and seems so forbidding, it has a big hole torn right in the middle. There's no need to fear death. Is it decay? Is it decay that you fear? Do you fear your own physical deterioration or your own mental or physical decline? The resurrection of Jesus means, get this, that at some point in the future, you will receive a new physical body, the properties of which will be like King Jesus' own, glorious, radiant, indestructible. What about futility? Is that what you fear? Do you fear futility? And by this, I mean, do you fear that you really have no real capacity to make a difference in the world? That the, the forces that seem to govern are so strong, so overpowering, and you're so slight that, that really you can't make any difference. Get this. The resurrection of Jesus means, this is incredible, that every act of creative love, no matter how small, no matter how invisible to anybody else, has lasting, eternal Wait, the resurrection means that God intends to remake this world, not abandon it, and that what feels to us like pointless, feeble attempts to make a difference actually make a profound difference. They actually last forever. And that's what Paul means in the very last verse of his famous resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. Listen to what he says. In light of the resurrection... He says, therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, don't give up. Immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The little things you do if you're a mom or a dad and you're caring for small children playing Candyland, the worst of all games, let's admit it. But it's bringing joy to that child. That act of love has eternal weight. If you got here this morning and you made French toast for the rest of us and you're on dishes duty, you're scraping those pans with a Brillo pad or whatever and you think it'll never end, that little act of love has eternal weight. If you work really hard to prepare a Bible study for Kairos, to bring spiritual nourishment to the men of the church, and you're laboring over it, and you're struggling over it, it matters, it has eternal weight. If you count people as an usher, or you teach Sunday school, or you lead the anti-trafficking initiative, maybe you think, does this make any difference at all? It makes all the difference. Because of the resurrection, it has eternal weight. None of it is lost. And over and above the forgiveness of sins, friendship with God, the resurrection means freedom from every fear. We don't have to fear anything because of the resurrection. And with Jesus out of the grave and a whole new world here and coming, we have everything to hope for and nothing to fear. And with nothing to fear, neither condemnation someday nor oblivion, we are totally free. We're free to live lives of courage, always telling the truth and living for the truth, of creativity and confidence. Third question, why can we be sure it happened? 
You know, maybe if you're new, you're thinking this, boy, this is such a nice idea. It's a beautiful, beautiful idea, but it cannot possibly be true. You know, friends, Christians do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus despite reasons. We believe in the resurrection of Jesus because of reasons. And you could put it this way. We believe that 2,000 years ago, Jesus rose from the dead for the same reason that we believe that Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon. And for the same reason that we believe that Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, we believe it on the basis of evidence. Now, a full-scale historical defense of the resurrection of Jesus would take more time than we have. But many of them are out there. But suffice it to say, there are three nearly undisputed facts that make the physical resurrection of Jesus as difficult as that can be for us as modern people to take in the best, the most compelling explanation of what happened on that very first Easter. Let me tell you what they are. First, on the first Easter, the morning of the first Easter, Jesus's tomb was empty. That was my favorite line in the song our little one sang, the Matthews kid sang about the grave being empty. This is not a private fact. That the grave was empty is a public fact. Nearly all ancient historians acknowledge this. Second, over 500 witnesses report having seen Jesus. And the Apostle Paul makes this statement in a public document, an assertion that would have been fiercely disputed had he been lying. And third, and perhaps most importantly, and this for me might be the clincher, the disciples who scattered like rabbits on the night of Jesus' arrest were transformed after Sunday morning. They were transformed into courageous witnesses who went to their deaths claiming that Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead and that they had seen him and they'd held him and they watched him eat and they ate the food that he made. Friends, as the great French mathematician Pascal once wrote, himself a passionate Christian, I believe those witnesses who get their throats cut. You know, I admit it can be hard to believe that 2,000 years ago a human being came back to life. But you know what? Once you've examined the historical evidence, you discover that it's actually harder to believe that he didn't. What does this come down to? You know, the resurrection of Jesus, it changes everything. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. All of its riches including complete forgiveness, friendship with God, freedom from every single thing that we fear, a glorious future on a renewed and restored earth, in a renewed and restored body, more powerful than any Olympic athlete. It's for the taking for anybody who believes. Anybody who believes the gospel, which is the career of Jesus, 
and how that career, like nobody else who ever lived, leads to our complete renewal, our transformation from the inside out into the family of God. It's for anybody who wants it, anybody who believes the gospel, and the gospel is this, that Jesus of Nazareth preexisted with the Father. That Jesus of Nazareth was sent by the Father to earth and became a human being. That Jesus of Nazareth lived a perfect life like nobody has ever lived. That Jesus of Nazareth died on the cross for our sins. That Jesus of Nazareth was buried in a tomb. That Jesus appeared to many that Jesus was installed as the world's true king and poured out his Holy Spirit so everybody, regardless of skin color, regardless of social background, regardless of starting point, could live as a royal member of his royal family. Believe that happened. Give allegiance to that king, and you know what, friend? You are a Christian. (laughs) And all of the gifts of Easter are yours. It has been a joy having you today. It's been a joy if you are a hillsider. It's been a joy if you're new. And if you're new and you believe the message of Easter, I want to invite you to begin coming to this church. That's the first step in living Easter. Coming here, being here, hearing the gospel, hearing other parts of God's truth, developing friendships with other people who know Jesus. That's what we're doing here at Hillside. And we invite you to join us in that adventure. Father, the riches of Easter are beyond our reckoning. We might think it's too good to be true, but it's true. We tremble with joy and gratitude when we think about what you did for us. And not only what you did for us, but for this whole groaning world in bringing your only begotten son back from the grave after he died in our place. We thank you for the hope that that means. Hope for this world. Hope for our lives. Hope for an ultimate new creation in which all is well. Thank you for the opportunity to live that now. Thanks for the opportunity to proclaim it as you give us opportunity. Thanks for the way it stabilizes us and encourages us and guides us and helps us day by day. We praise you, we thank you, and we pray in the name of our risen and reigning King, Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.